0: 2 Peter chapter 1, and we're going to start reading in verse 12, and we'll read through the end of the chapter. 2 Peter 1, verse 12. Therefore, I intend always to remind you of these qualities, though you know them and are established in the truth that you have. I think it right, as long as I am in this body, to stir you up by way of reminder, since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon as our Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me. And I will make every effort so that after my departure you may be able to at any time recall these things. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitnesses of His majesty. For when He received honor and glory from God the Father... The voice was born to Him by the majestic glory. This is My beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with Him on the holy mountain. And we have something more sure. The prophetic word to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, are you prone to forgetfulness? We all are in some ways. Do you ever find yourself forgetting where you put your phone or your jacket? Now, these days, uh, every single kid I've ever known forgets where he put his or her shoes. Um, And I can attest to you that as of even yesterday. Um, Do you ever get home from the grocery store and you, you realize suddenly that you forgot to buy the very thing you went there to get? And you got a bunch of other stuff. Or, this has happens to me pretty often, I'm standing in an aisle, like the plumbing aisle of Home Depot, thinking, what was it that I needed? <laughs> this is the whole point in coming. And um, apart from phone calls and text messages, maybe email, the thing I use my cell phone for more than anything else is to help rem- help me remember things. And so my calendar app, and, I, and so I can remember events and meetings. I have the little alert, alert notifications, you know, one day before, or one hour before, fifteen minutes before, just to remind me of these things. I have a little reminder app where I can say in the little voice thing, "Remind me to take out the trash tomorrow," and I use it all the time. I have list apps reminding me to to do a certain tasks. With with so many things rushing at us during a very normal day, with so many. Uh, things competing for our attention and, and, and demanding our attention. It's difficult to remember everything, even the very important things. Um, and, so as, and, and this forgetfulness, it can cause all kinds of problems for us, as you can probably attest. Big problems and small problems. I mean, just the normal memory lapses can lead to, to very, the, the frustrating embarrassment of a missed meeting and how, oh, I'm so sorry, I totally forgot some of you have heard those words from me, uh, so you, you understand that. And, but even you know, severe memory loss can be very dangerous to a person, even physically dangerous. And so the same can be said of our spiritual memory. That, that forgetfulness is a constant struggle for us. We forget who we are in Christ. We forget what God has promised to us. We forget what we're to be doing as those who are in Christ. And this kind of forgetfulness can lead to all kinds of problems. Big ones and small ones. And so Pastor Peter, he knew this tendency well. And so, he knew this in his own life and he saw this in the church. And so, he's, he's especially aware of this as he nears the end of his life. And so, he, he knows his days are numbered. He, and he takes the quill into his hand. And he begins to write this urgent appeal that's full of reminders and you don't get the picture of Peter um, just kind of waiting around to die. He says, and we're going to see it in this passage, that, that okay, he knows he's going to die. But he's not just waiting around, just, what am I going to do today? That's not it. You get the picture of an elder, elderly Peter who's, who's pouring out every last bit of energy that God gives him uh, to obey the charge that Jesus gave him. Remember? Shepherd my sheep. So this is what he's doing. Here at the end of his life, he has has the health and the stability of Christ's church on his heart. And and he's doing everything he can, everything he possibly can to help these believers and these churches remain strong in Christ long after he's gone and out of the scene. More than anything else, as he remembers his own death, he, he, he wants the church to remember the truths of the Gospel. And so there's this... This urgent need given the situation that his readers are in back then and even today. That there were deceivers who had kind of weasel their way into these churches and into these gatherings and they were trying to undercut the Gospel to take the legs out from, from the promises of God that these people had clung to. They're sowing suspicion in, in what God has, has, has promised concerning Jesus. And so Peter knows what's at stake. He knows the seriousness of this. He knows that these Christless paths that these deceivers are trying to lure these Christians onto. He knows that those will only rob their joy and their peace and their confidence in Christ and their hope and and all these things and love. So he, he writes this letter to breathe fresh gospel air into these churches. And to make sure they don't forget who Christ is, what He's accomplished, what He's promised, who they are in Christ, and what He's called them to. And so we're now in our third week of studying this letter of 2 Peter together. And as we've already seen, this little three-chapter book is just chock full of, uh, of promises from a faithful God who wants to encourage us to... To walk, to, to keep walking in and growing in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ, and so that's what we see. The, the 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 big thought today, and so we've seen that the fact that we're to be rooted in this growing grace, that it's it's it, that we're rooted in Christ and what He's done for us, and then that bears out fruit in our lives. So there's this fruit of growing grace that shows up in those qualities and those characteristics we looked at last night or, or last week, and 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 here. We're talking about this revelation of grace that God has given to us in His Word. And so we'll say that the, the big thought today is the stability we need for growing grace cannot be separated from the certainty of revealed grace. And so let's look at that together. And we'll just make three statements to kind of walk through this lengthier passage to this morning. First thing we'll see in verses 12 to 15 is that the, we'll see the lifelong need for revealed grace lifelong need for it. And the kind of the, the, the imperative here that stands out is that we need to remember it. And you can't miss it in verses 12 to 15. He's laying out his whole purpose in writing this letter. And the, the key word is remember. I'm writing these things to remind you. And he's writing them to, to remind us as we'll see all who read this letter. So verse 12 again. Therefore, I intend always to remind you of these qualities, though you know them and are established in the truth that you have. So you think about, if we need to be reminded of something, we, we need to be informed or we need to be told about things that we don't yet know. But we need to be reminded of things that we already, already know. And so Peter's saying, I know you already know this, that you're already rooted in, you're already established in the truth, the the truth of the gospel, but I'm writing to remind you nonetheless. And, and and this is what I mean by this lifelong need for revealed grace. We need this constant reminders. Much of the Christian life is about remembering remembering, remembering Christ, remember what he's done, remember what he's called us to. And so it's it's clear from verse twelve that, that Peter's not casting his casting doubt on the 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 genuineness of the faith of his readers—that's not the point. He's not being critical of them or suggesting that they're somehow waffling or wavering. No, he knows that they know these truths. He knows that they're firmly established in them, but he wants to make sure they remember them and remain strong in the grace and knowledge of Christ. But I don't want to take for granted that everybody here knows this truth. Do are you firmly established in the truth of the gospel? Is your trust in christ alone this gospel that we've been seeing unfolded particularly in those opening verses of first peter is your faith in Jesus alone and what he did by dying on the cross for your sins, rising from the dead have you have you trusted in him if if you haven't, you can't expect this kind of stability and 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 growth that Peter's appealing for from from believers? So so if you've not trusted in Christ, I urge you to do that today. But here he's, he's writing, assuming, and he's saying, I know, you've, I know you've been established in this truth. But he says, verse 13 again, I think it right as long as I am in this body to stir you up by way of reminder. And even the, the tense of that expression, stir you up by way of the reminder, it's present tense, which just means habitual, continuous action. I'm always, this is going to be the habit of my life, to stir you up, by way of reminder, not a one-time need, oh yeah, I forgot that, but I remember it now, I'm good. No, it's constant need for remembering. This is what Peter realizes they need. And throughout throughout Scripture, we we see the importance of remembering. It's not just in this letter of 2 Peter. God is woven into the very fabric of all of His dealings with His people, this need for remembrance. He wants us to always remember the things we already know. And, and because he knows we're like sheep and we wander and we stray. And so we, we need to be constantly brought back and, and reminded of these things. Just some, a few examples in Scripture. Deuteronomy 6, well-known passage. Certainly every, every Jew knows these words. This is, this is kind of the banner over their life, over their households. But this is a classic passage that, that is over Israel and their understanding of the Lord and His Word. Deuteronomy 6, it's, it's Moses riding sort of like Peter, just before he's, he, he's about to die. And so he's about to pass the baton on to Joshua, who's going to take his people into the promised land. And, and so this is probably months, maybe weeks before Moses dies. And he reminds him and he tells him, this is, this is the most important thing you need to know. What is it? Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. The Lord is one. It's not the plurality of gods like the nations that are surrounding you. No, He's one. He's one God. He's sovereign over all. And and you're to love Him with everything that you are. That's why He made you. That's why He redeemed you. And this truth needs to just be continually white hot for them. They couldn't let ashes grow cold over, or grow, you know, start piling up over, over this. They had to constantly teach these things to their children. So he says in verse 7, you shall teach these things diligently to your children, and you shall talk of them when you sit in your house, and when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise. Meaning these truths are just to be saturated through every aspect of your life. And you shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes and you shall write them on the doorpost of your house and on your gates. It's just showing that God's word is to be saturated in everything they do and everything they think on the entrance to their private life, on their exit into the public sphere. And so he's just saying every aspect of your life is to be marked by this passionate, wholehearted, full surrendered love for the God who made you and redeemed you. And here's the question why why was it so important that they remember this that and it's because of what happens in the very next passage and I don't we don't have time to read through this together let me just kind of summarize it. he he's going to say them you're about to enter the promised land and your at least your children are and some of you and 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 your kids are going to inherit a bunch of cities that they didn't build and and they're going to they're going to have they're going to have a bunch of houses full of treasures that they didn't earn. And they're going to drink water from giant cisterns, full cisterns that they didn't dig. And they're going to have vineyards that they're going to enjoy fruit from and orchards and olive trees that they didn't plant. They're going to have all these treasures that they're going to possess. And they didn't, they didn't earn or secure any of them on their own. And the reason I'm telling you this now is when that day comes, it's so they don't forget The Lord. That they don't forget it was the Lord their God who brought you, who brought them out of Egypt. You did not do this yourself. This is the Lord's doing. And why is that so important? Because they're going to be attacked, they're going to be surrounded, they're going to have all of these threats, and it's going to give them confidence to say, God brought me here. I didn't do anything for this. He brought me here. Salvation is of the Lord, and He will keep me. And so they needed to constantly remember that their deliverance, their salvation, had nothing to do with them. It had everything to do with God and His grace to redeem them. And so this is something they could not get over. They could never tire of remembering and rehearsing with, uh, to themselves and to their children. And, so, and you see other instances of this in Scripture. Reminders are huge throughout the Bible. It's the reason God set up all those feasts and festivals and holy days for the Jews. They aren't made... God didn't make all of those and design those festivals and, and, and traditions and holy days so that they could have some religious practices. You know, all the other nations, they have their religious practices. Well, let me give you some for you. That's not the point. They weren't made by God so, we could, so people could practice religion. They were all designed so that as His people went, from, went through them year after year after year, they would be reminded of God's goodness and His grace and His redemption. His faithfulness to keep all of his promises to them, that was the point it 's the same reason that the Lord has given us the institution of the lord 's table as we we eat and drink uh, eat the bread and drink the cup it 's not because we need a little snack and a little sip to get us through the morning it 's not just about a you know a religious practice or a tradition or a little ceremony that we do, and this is just kind of our thing that 's not it. Christ calls us to gather around his table to remind us of the bedrock of our salvation. It is his grace. It is it's it's all about Christ and what he accomplished through his death and his resurrection. It's woven into our life together. He, do this in remembrance of me. It's just a reminder, not not simply do this in honor of me like we kind of remember a fallen war hero or something like that and we and and but he's saying no, remember Remember what I did, remember what I'm doing, I'm present with you, remember what I have promised to do and will accomplish. So this regular remembrance it's it's given by the Lord to to recenter us on him and and to 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 fill our hearts with this gospel hope. And so reminders are necessary for his people. They always have been, they always will be. Our our memories need to be constantly refreshed. I know you some of you know more about this than I do, but you in your computer you have two, types of, two main types of memory. You have that kind of short-term memory, the RAM, and you have that longer memory. It used to be called ROM. I don't know if it's still called that or not. Um, but, but that RAM, RAM, that random access memory, is the memory is it's short-term. It's volatile. It has to be constantly refreshed millions and millions of times as you're, as you're working. This is why you can do Control-Z, which I have to do all the time. Undo. At least on the Mac, I don't know, but uh, and so you're, you're you're having to undo things. But the computer remembers the keystroke that I just made that was wrong, and if, if it wasn't for RAM, it would it would have no clue. And so it's that instant, quick memory, and and, and so we we have to constantly refresh our spiritual RAM. We 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 we're remembering what Christ has promised and what has accomplished, remembering what we've received because there are so many things that will threaten to push those realities out of our out of our minds and so our memory must constantly be refreshed over and over and over and over again. This is what Peter's saying. I'm I'm urging you got to you gotta, you've, over and over the the ha- habit of of my ministry is to remind you. This is what's got to go on and on and on of the things you already know. And he says in verse 14, why he's stressing this so urgently to these believers. Verse 14, since I know that the putting off of my body is literally tent, in that language that Paul uses in 2 Corinthians, I know that's going to be soon as our Lord Jesus Christ has made clear to me. And I will make every effort so that after my departure you may be able at any time to recall these things. In other words, here's, here's why Peter's so burdened. He knows he's about to die. He, we talked about this a couple of months a couple of weeks ago. he 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 may be months, weeks, possibly days away from his execution, and Jesus made this known to him, whether that's from kind of special direct revelation uh, or he's thinking back to john twenty one. Uh, I don't know, but either way, Peter's about to die. He knows it. Now just imagine the weight of that. Just feel that burden for Peter, for the church. All the apostles are dead except for John after Peter goes, and he won't be alive much longer. So if you are in that early church, and you've grown up under the teaching and the counsel of these apostles who walked with Jesus, and, and, now, now they're, and they've been delivering these first-hand accounts of all that they saw and they heard from Christ. They've been feeding you this diet of the Gospel all this time, and now all of a sudden your heroes are being killed off. And Peter, the leader of these, is about to die now, too. So imagine what it's going to feel like for these second generation Christians. There's this sense of, I don't know. I don't know what's waiting for us after all of them are gone. I just can't conceive of life without them in in, in the mix. There's this incredible weight on these churches, on Peter. And so he writes here I know my death is imminent. And in light of this, that's why I've I've got to tell you right now, all the more I want to remind you of these gospel promises and these gospel implications so that you'll hold on to them long after I'm gone. And so that you'll know that your hope and your dependence is not on man, it's not on me, it's on Christ. He's enough to carry you through. And He's not, He's not, He's careful not to just give kind of an audible. Reminder, he wants it written. And so there's this written letter under the Spirit's inspiration so that believers, even long after Peter's gone, will be able to recall these things. This is for us. So that's the first thing. There's this lifelong need for revealed grace. We constantly remember the things that we already know. Second, we'll see here the truthfulness of revealed grace in verses 16 to 18. The truthfulness of revealed grace. And this is the command for us is to accept it to trust it so peter begins to really put the stake in the ground in verse 16 and following here he one of the things these false teachers that we're going to start really looking at in chapter 2 next week these false teachers brought in to the church this skepticism about christ's return it's really not even skepticism it's just outright denial They didn't think christ was coming back and they denied that. And so in their minds, yes, Christ had come. Sure, we'll grant that. But He's gone now. He's never coming back again. And so why think about Him? Why love Him? Why serve Him? Why worship Him? Why obey Him? Why give any thought to Him? Why remember Him? He's, he's gone. And so He's, he's an afterthought. He's a, this small segment of history that we're ready to move on from. This is how these false teachers were... We're communicating to in these churches. And so, so do what you want. Act how you want. Shepherd your own life to make it the best you can. That's, that's how they thought. And so this, of course, is a clear contradiction to what Jesus Himself said. He said, you know, He will be with us always to the end of the age by His Holy Spirit. He, he is still the head of His church. He's building His church. He's interceding for His church. He's, and He's going to return to judge the living and the dead and so one way that these deceivers were were, were uh, dismissing Jesus and this and his sufficiency was to chalk all of this up, all this whole thing of a promised return, chalk it up as a myth. It's just a man made myth. It's a fairy tale. And that's what they're doing in this church. We'll see in chapter three later, in, in chapter three, verses three and four, they're scoffing. That's the word that's used there, and they're saying things like, Where is the promise of his coming? He did not come back yet. He's not coming. hate to break it to you. And so Peter is saying to these believers in this letter, these false teachers are coming. They're going to mock you. They're going to mock Christ's return. So Peter responds, verse 16, giving some substance and weight to what he's writing to them. We did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of His majesty. He's saying, we did not make this stuff up. This didn't come out of our own imagination. We didn't dream this up and then tell you but that Christ is going to return. No, we saw His coming with our own eyes. Oh, that's interesting. The, the way this verse is stated, just a couple things. Note there. One, that's just powerful in itself. These are eyewitnesses. But secondly, if you're paying attention here, you're saying, now wait a minute. He's talking about the second coming of Christ, the return of Christ, and when I last checked, He hasn't come back yet. And you're saying you were a witness of something that hasn't occurred now, 2,000 years later, and let alone in your lifetime. So what's going on? Well, hold your place there in 2 Peter and turn back to Matthew 16 and Matthew 17. We're going to look at those chapters real quickly. So let's, let's see exactly what Peter's talking about here. Matthew 16. Here's the context of Matthew 16. Jesus, and the Jesus sent his disciples to go out into the countryside, to go out into these villages and towns, preaching the gospel, healing diseases. Uh, performing miracles in his name, and so he sends them out, and they do just that. And then, he, and then they come back from this ministry, little short term mission trip. And in chapter 16, he, he, he pulls them together and he takes them away for a little retreat. So they go up into Caesarea Philippi, go north and northern part of Israel, and he takes them up to do this little debrief session from their, their mission trip and to tip them uh, to what's coming. And, and so he gets them up there and he asks a couple of probing questions right away. He says, I, you guys have been out in these cities performing miracles, preaching the gospel in my name. I'm curious. And you see it starting in verse 13 of 16. Or right, As you went out and you did this ministry, who do the people say that I am? I'm curious. So they start, well, we talked to all kinds of people. Some said you were Elijah. Some said John the Baptist. Some said some, some other Another prophet, or something along those lines. That's what the people were, were saying. And so Jesus stops and says, Okay, okay, here's the real question Who do you say that I am? And not surprisingly, Peter's the first one to speak up. And he's speaking for the group, and he confesses, I know exactly who you are. You are the Messiah. You are the promised one from the Old Testament Scriptures, the the one who was to come. You are Him. You are the very Son of God. And Jesus affirms His answer says, you are exactly right. You didn't come up with that on your own. God God revealed this to you, but you are right. And then what happens in verses 21 and following there is Jesus begins to turn the corner with them now and and He he begins to tell them, here's what the Messiah that you confess, this is what He came to do. And it's probably a little different than what you think, than what you've been thinking. I've come to lay down my life and not long from now, I'm going to put myself into the hands of the chief priests and they're going to kill me. And then three days later, I'm going to rise from the dead. Now Peter hears this, and in verse 22, he stands up and he goes, I don't think so. You're not dying. Not on my watch. Over my dead body, you're going to die. And, and he says, you're, no, you're basically saying, you're not going to ru- ruin all my plans for us, Jesus. You can't do that. Verse 23, Jesus rebukes Peter, because Peter has done, what he's done is basically put put, put his will above and in front of, The Lord's will. This is the exact same thing that Satan did in the garden uh, with the tree of knowledge of good and evil, and with Adam and Eve, he usurped God's will. so, So Jesus says, This is his rebuke. Get behind me, Satan. And then what Jesus does in verse 24 and following there, pulls everyone together, the disciples and others who are around, and he's going to make a teaching lesson out of this. And he goes, In light of what Peter just did here, here's what you don't do. If you want to be a follower of the true Messiah, here's what you need to do. You need to deny yourself. You need to pick up your cross. You need to follow Me. My will comes first. Then in verse 27, the reason for this is that the Messiah is going to return soon. The same One who is going to die and be raised and ascend to the Father, He's going to come back. That's the second coming of Christ. The return of Christ. And what happens in verse 28 is he just drops a bomb on them. And he, and this is where it ties into our second Peter message. If you thought I'd forgotten where we were at. Um, he says, truly I say to you. Now, I know it's been a long time since we were in the Gospel of Matthew. But this is one of his, his famous expressions. And he's just saying, just take this to the bank. This is, stake your life upon this right here. When he says that expression, truly I say to you. There are some standing here, not all of you, but a few of you, some of you, who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in His kingdom. Now the same question pops up for me that popped up in 2 Peter 1 there. Last I checked, He hasn't come back yet. And last I checked, all the apostles I'm pretty sure are dead now. So how is it then that some who are standing there with Jesus are not going to die without seeing Jesus' return? And here's the answer. Next chapter, chapter 17. Stay with me there in Matthew 17, verse 1. After six days, so six days after that event in Caesarea Philippi, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. So only three of the twelve now. Uh, this is some of them, like Jesus said. And He takes them up onto a mountain, and He becomes transfigured before Him. He, he, he shines, his face shines like the sun. His garments become white as light. And so what He's doing in that moment is, is He who has been in this humble state of humanity and flesh, He pulls back the veil. And for a moment He gives these three apostles, these three disciples a sneak peek at His glory. This is the manifestation of His kingdom glory as the Son of God in all of His might, all of His splendor right there before them. Can you imagine the sight? A picture of what Jesus is going to be like when He returns. It's stunning. And, and standing right next to Him is Moses and Elijah. And they're with Him and they're talking with Him. And so this is crazy too. Moses and Elijah, they've been dead for so long. And here they are. Everybody just hanging out on top of this mountain. Now why are Moses and Elijah there? Because in the Old Testament, Moses is is the one figure that most represents the entirety of, of God's law given as Sinai. So he's in bodily form, as it were, the very character of God. And Elijah is the one figure who's most representative of all the prophets. And and so uh, he's the one of, of those who wrote the prophecies and the promises concerning Messiah. And so in that moment, you have the law and the prophets, which Jesus said summed up the entire scriptures, the Old Testament. And they're testifying that Jesus is the Son of God. Peter, you're, they're, they're, they're saying by their presence, Peter, your confession six days ago, spot on. Nailed it. Now, God revealed it to you, but that's it. And, and they're on that mountain in front of these three disciples testifying to that fact. And so Peter thinks this is a pretty good deal. So in, in verse 4, Matthew 17, he says, Lord, it is good that we are here. That's the understatement of the century. I'd say so. Jesus is transfigured in front of you. Moses and Elijah are there. Wow! And so Peter says, "You know what? I'm going to set up. I'm going to set up three tents right here, and and one for each of you. I'm going to build a little compound up here, and we're not leaving this mountain. This is amazing. But listen, Jesus didn't just didn't take Peter up there to do anything. Isn't that so like us. We want." We he brought him up there to witness something, to see something, to hear something, and so when Peter gets going, spouting off of his pl- all of his plans, look at verse five. He was still speaking when, behold, look, see it. A bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, "This is my beloved son, with whom I am." well pleased listen to him so in addition to elijah in addition to to moses you have god himself speaking from heaven testifying himself about his own son he is the messiah he is your savior he is he is my son and when the three disciples they heard this they fell on the ground, on their faces on the ground, and they're terrified. So, one moment, Peter's thrilled. He's ready to set up a little amusement park up there. Jesus is the main attraction, and you got the Moses and Elijah areas of the park. The very next moment, he's in a puddle on the ground, weeping. Because God speaks in the weight of his holiness. Verse 7 Jesus comes and he touches them, and he, and he says, Rise have no fear and then all of a sudden nobody else is there Jesus is back in a state of humanity with him with them the way that they've known him the only way they've known him up to this point now go back to 2nd Peter if your finger's been there it's probably asleep by now I realize that moment on that mountain is exactly what Peter's talking about here in 2nd Peter 1 It's why he says these words in verse 17. Now pick it up with me. He's summarizing that event. For when we received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to Him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice, born from heaven, and we were with Him on the holy mountain. In other words, he's saying to these believers who are just being battered by persecution and are being, being uh, infiltrated by these deceivers who are threatening to undo this, the, the, the gospel and to take the legs out from it. He says to them, listen, we are eyewitnesses. I, I know you may discourage now. I know you may be tempted to doubt. I, I know these false teachers are trying to tell you that his promises are not true, that he's not coming back. I know that they're trying to tell you that His Word, these promises, are supposed to anchor your soul. They're actually very shaky. And they're really not well founded. And 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 they're trying to make you believe it's not going to happen. But I'm telling you, we were there. We saw it. We saw the glory of God with our own eyes. I know it's true. Everything you have in the Scriptures, all of the promises, they're true. Just feel the weight of that the aged Apostle Peter is pleading with them. To a church that's tempted to doubt. Is this stuff true? As these Apostles are dying off. And they're going to be without them. What are they left with? They're left with the Word. God's revelation of Himself. Through the prophecies. Through these Apostles. Is this Gospel enough? Are, Are God's promises certain? Is Christ really coming back? Peter says, you, you bet. I've seen it. I was there. When I saw on the mountain, it wasn't a myth, it wasn't just some kind of cool show, it was a display of power, and we haven't seen the last of it. And so the faith, listen, the faith we've received, brothers and sisters, I know there are threats abound, and there's attacks on it all the time, but the faith we've received is founded on historical facts, truthfulness. It's corroborated by eyewitnesses. What God has revealed about His Son and His grace, they're true. His promises are confirmed. Trust it. And that brings us to the last thing. And we'll, we'll be quick here. And it's this source of revealed grace. The source of revealed grace. In verses 19 to 21. And this is something we must pay attention to. Verse 19. And we have the prophetic word uh, made sure, made more sure, certain. Certain. Um, we have something more sure, the prophetic word. And so this prophetic word is the message told years before about the coming of Christ. And you go back into the Old Testament. You have like Psalm 2, 7 and 8. I will tell you the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. Isaiah 42.1 Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen and whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him and he will bring forth justice to the nations. And so you just take those prophecies. You see the fulfillment in, in, in the transfiguration that Peter witnessed. And, and so he had, he, he had seen those fulfilled. And Jesus, hearing from the Father, this is my beloved Son, my chosen one. And what Peter did not understand at the time was that, at the, transfer, at the time of the Transfiguration, was that Isaiah 42 would lead to Isaiah 53. That the beloved, chosen one who would be crushed for our sins and bruised for our, our iniquities, and the Father who loves his Son would pour out his wrath on his Son for our sins, and he would become a substitute for us and die in our place. The Lord became the Lamb. The King became the condemned, the perfect became the punished, and Peter had all of these realities flooding into his heart and mind here as he writes this we we have this more sure this word you could take to the bank, yes even though you have all this confusion about you, all this lack of clarity that you 're hearing from these these pretenders and they' they're, 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 they're questioning whether these things are true, I want you to know that what you have in the Scriptures is true. It's true. You can hold to this. You can cling to this. He's coming back. He has not forsaken you. And see, since these promises are true, in verse 19, you will do well to pay attention to them. Pay attention to them. How do we do that? He says, as to a lamp shining in a dark place. I and mean, what do you do if you're in a pitch black room or building I mean dark dark can't see your hand in front of your face and yet you have a tiny lamp or a flashlight we'll just say a little even a little pin light what do you do to that light and there's all kinds of dangers and hazards around what do you, you hold on to that thing you hold fast to that because the lamp is the only thing that's going to get you through that. It's going to help you guide your steps. And you can see the hazard. And you can navigate through it. It's the only thing that's going to help you navigate the darkness that surrounds you. I mean, Psalm 119 speaks like this God's Word is a lamp to our feet, a light to our path. And so Peter's saying here, hold fast to his promises. Hold fast to them. These promises in the scriptures. He's not So when he says, "Pay attention to it," I know we, we read a passage like this. We'll talk more about this at the end if we have time. Um, we think like this, we immediately go to, what I need to do then is read my Bible more and, and memorize it and do the Bible reading plan and do all these things. That's not how readers that's, not, I, I, that's a great application, and I'm, I want, all those things are a good things. That's not the primary application that Peter has in mind his readers. He's saying, There's, they're in darkness." There's a, there's just depression. So just put, picture believers in Pakistan right now, and and add to that, you have people who are in the church deceiving and false teachers who are coming in. And here, and what they what he's saying is, you cling to God's promises, hold to His word. It's sure. It's certain. I know you look around you and you try to interpret your circumstances and you see what's going on around you and, 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 and it can cause you to, to begin to waver in doubt and he's saying, no. The truth that you've been established in is true. It's certain. Hold fast to it like a light shining in the darkness, like a lamp shining in the darkness. And when your assurance is constantly attacked, when the sufficiency of Christ is doubted, when, when others are trying to undercut the gospel, when when future hope is denied, hold fast. Pay attention to it like a lamp in the darkness. How long are we to do that? He says, until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Now, basically, in a very literal sense, we're saying, how long do I need that flashlight in that dark room? Well, until the sun comes up, assuming there's windows. But, I mean, once, once the light comes up, once the day dawns, I don't, need the, I don't need the lamp anymore. It's not doing anything anymore. And so, this, this is clearly a reference to Christ's return here. There will, be a, there will be one day when there's no more need for the lamp. We will have the light of Christ illuminating the temple. We will will have no more need for this prophecy because it's going to be completed. But until that day, He's given us His Word to hold fast to, to guide us through the dark place until we get to the place that's full of light. Verse 20, knowing this first of all, Above all, this is of paramount importance, knowing this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from one's own interpretation. This is so important is what he's saying. Our ability to grasp the, the uniqueness of the Bible is intimately bound up with our, um, our stability in the faith. We are, we are called to place our faith, not in flimsy words of man, but in God's certain and sure word. Now, there's different interpretations of this passage about interpretations here. Um, but I, I'm not going to go through all of them. I, I think from the context, from the language here, this means that the prophecies themselves did not originate from the prophets. But And, and that idea, the word interpretation is literally just unloosing. This is the source of them. They did, they're not sourced from the prophets. They're sourced from God. He came from God. Scripture didn't, and you see that, we'll see that clearly in verse 21, next verse, but... The, the, the scripture is not from man. It's not the product of you know these guys eating too much pizza and staying up too late and having these weird thoughts and just putting these things down. The gospel isn't man-made. Grace is revealed to us by God in it. That's what we're saying. It's grace revealed. It's His gospel, His prophecies, His plan. Not some cleverly crafted story that you could take or leave. This is the Word of God. Verse twenty one, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Just the that that picture of being carried along by the Holy Spirit. It's just it's the it was the the, the expression was used of a ship being carried along, borne along by the wind. It's not self generated power, it's 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 wind driven, it's God driven, God breathed word. It's He's the one that's moved it along. And so as he's he's encouraging these believers and he's throwing the gauntlet down for these false teachers and, and, who are troubling the church. They leveled the charge that Peter and the other apostles, they made up these Jesus myths and Peter here is saying, no, not the case. We're eyewitnesses. His, his word is true. We have this word, more sure. Uh, your attempts to to uh, accuse us of making myths or just really attempts to conceal the fact that what you're saying is total make-believe. I mean, we see this even in our own day. You know, the, 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 the God-told-me thing is generally just a smokescreen to disguise human opinions that are kind of cloaked in prophetic-sounding uh, words. But don't be drawn away by it. No matter how pious and persuasive it sounds, we have, we have His revelation of grace that He's given to us. Just a couple implications of this passage. One, nothing is more certain than God's Word. And this is timely. We have a Gideon report this morning, and, and that's a ministry devoted to getting God's Word out around the world. And why? Because that, letter, that leather-bound book in your lap right now is the very Word of God. It is not the creation of man. And, and so pay attention to it, read it, memorize it, meditate on it, teach it, pray it, run to it. Yes. Now that is certainly a major implication of this passage. And one that we should. But that, I, again, as I said earlier, it's not, I don't think the primary application in the sense, that's not the form in which Peter's first readers understood this. So I know we can't help but think of it through the lens of our situation today where we all have copies of the Bible and multiple copies of the Bible. Just, just for a second try to separate yourself from that and put yourself in the shoes of First Peter's first readers. Because you know, we, we tend to think, when most people think of Second Peter, this is the verse they think of and they usually come across of it in systematic theology when we're trying to say, okay, what's the theology of the Bible? What's the Bible's inspiration about? Or we use it in apologetics. We want to convince people of the... The, the truthfulness of the Bible or, or something like that and, and, and those are fine and those are good and though there's, it's right to use, go to passages like this but again put yourself in the minds of these first Christians these first readers okay, this idea of having a bound copy was, was totally foreign to them we are privileged to have the access that we do but here's the broader primary implication of this text and I alluded to this a little bit earlier the, the, the true promises of God are a shelter in the storm. Peter's burden is that we cling to the word that we already know to be true. These promises which from their minds are delivered orally. But we have them written. But we, we, we who know, we who are establishing the truth of the gospel need to be constantly reminded of its, promise, of its promises and of its power. He was believers, again, being threatened by persecution from without, uh, threatened by deception from within. They needed this anchor to keep holding on to. And, And because there were these continuous attacks intended to make them doubt God's promises, they needed continual reminders that these promises are true. Hold fast. Whatever darkness you may be walking in today, this is wonderful encouragement to you. You have something sure, something certain to cling to and the revelation of God's grace and His Word. And then another implication, again, seeing through the lens of their context, these true promises are meant to be clung to together. Again, we think in our situation, we just think, me and my Bible. You know, like this is God's, I've heard things, God's love later to me. No. I mean, okay, I understand sort of what you mean, but that's not really a great, Summary statement of what the Bible is. This is God's word to His people together. That those early believers they didn't have access to the Bible personally. They they were reliant on the community of believers. That one of the main ways we remember the gospel truths and that God intends for us and to pay attention to God's word and hold to it like a light shining in the darkness is through our fellowship within the church. And this is, this is about us letting the Word of Christ dwell in us together richly. This is why the Lord, is in His wisdom, He tells the church to gather on the first day of the week is why we're to remember the Lord's table. Being in the church, in the assembly, is a way to recall, to remember, to be refreshed, like that ram, that spiritual ram, be refreshed by these gospel truths continually. They weren't meant to be fully understood or realized on our own as individuals. Our gospel identity is formed and shaped and flourishes most in community. So we we do grow individually. I don't mean to say that at all. But, but we grow best together. This is the design. This has always been God's plan for His church. That we would not just be persons but a people. Not just priests but a priesthood. Not just stones but a building not just family members but a family and so we, we do this and we do this together this is the beauty and the, the great thing about us being together this is why Luke Pass says something in this moment of grief not leave me alone I need to be alone I just need some my time with God he says no we have a family and we need them right now and in, we need to hold fast to a lamp shining in the darkness together. And so this is what we're called to. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the certainty of your word. I'm thankful that we don't, uh, our confidence isn't in something wishy-washy or constantly changing or, or dependent upon the, uh, some councils of voting and saying whether this is your word. We have, you've revealed your grace to us in your word. And I pray that our stability uh, of the faith we've received would be grounded upon that even more. That, that uh, you would starve the unbelief that continues to reside in our hearts as we, as we cling to, to Christ and your word together. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.